Would you bow with me to pray? Father in heaven, I am so glad it's another Sunday. I am so glad that, um, that we are in this room with you. I'm so glad we've had this opening time to have our, our minds placed upon you, our thoughts placed upon you, to have our voices lifted up to you. Father, I know we've come from a thousand different places, and you know where each one of us has come from, and, and you are here to meet each one of us right where we are. And I think that's begun already, Father. I know it's begun already. May it continue on with, with the teaching and, and with the worship that concludes I pray you would reach each of us at the core of our being with what we need to hear most and know most and experience most from you. And I trust, I know, uh, that's what you're here to do. So with great anticipation, Father, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. I'm going to ask the ushers to come down. We say this every time we do an offering at FCC. For those of you that are new, the offering is a time for those of us that call this place home to give back to God's cause, and we do it gladly and joyfully and willfully. But if you are a guest, then feel no obligation to put money in the basket, none, none whatsoever. We, we hope and pray that in the time and the hour here that you really experience God's presence and you really hear from him and you're impacted by him. There are two, two big things I want to tell you about while the offering is passed. The first is this, is that, that our small groups are launching their next season right now. Our small group ministry is starting, and for those of you that are not in a small group, it is, it's one of the, the crucial places that someone comes to know God and follow God and live this life with God. And so a number of you are not in a small group, and this is the ideal time to sign up for one and to, to step into the small group world and to experience that. And as, as your pastor, if this is your church home, I could not urge you more, um, more passionately than I am to say this is a place, this is a crucial place. If you really want to know God better and follow him with, uh, with more abandon, this is the place to do it. So when service is done, when you go out actually into the outdoors, uh, beyond the doors into the sunlight out there, on both sides and uh, in the middle and off to this side, there are tables, and you can check out info about small groups. Not only would you grow closer to God, but it's, it's most often a place where there's some great friendships that form. Sometimes friendships that last a lifetime. So I urge you about that. Second big thing is this, is I've talked in the past several months a lot about a ministry called Living Hope Ministry, which is a ministry for those that struggle with same gender attraction, but want to follow Jesus faithfully, biblically, and with purity. And so it's a ministry for those that struggle. It's been around for about 25 plus years. And uh, I've, I've looked far and wide for ministries in this area. And by far, by far, it's the one that God is using most profoundly for anyone that wants to follow Jesus, to be able to do it deeply and do it well. And there's a segment of it, big segment, that's for family and friends of strugglers as well. And we're about to launch a satellite here in February. It's about to launch. And I say that because you can't just show up to protect the ministry. You have to do uh, an intake interview. And so there are a number of you that either you struggle or you have a loved one that struggles, and this would be for you. And uh, I would urge you to check it out. On the back of your program, the very bottom name is Chris Ward. It says Pastor of Living Hope Houston. This is a non-denominational ministry. And if this is of, of any part of your world, however wide your world is, then um, send an email to Chris Ward or call Chris Ward and say, hey, let's sit down and talk and tell me more about this. So again, that launches in February. Big, big deal. Those are the two big things. There's so much launching now. I think you have a slide 
that uh, just list a ton of stuff that's in the program. I'm going to read through my, my list. Frontier Camp is here today. So parents and kids, Frontier Camp is here today down the hall. Men's Life launches this Wednesday. Grief Share launches again another season in two Sundays. There's this children's baptism workshop in two Sundays for parents and kids. There's a membership class in two Sundays. It's all in your program. And so I say that uh, good stuff there. All the details are in your program coming up. So, uh, so there's, there's a lot ahead. There's a lot that God's doing. There's, there's a lot that I think God wants to do in the remainder of this hour. So can we pray one more time? And, um, and then I'll begin to teach. Father, uh, again, Father, we are here to meet you and to hear from you. So may, may my words be the words that really your Holy Spirit would speak. And may I speak those words with your passion for these words. And may every hearer here take them into their heart and mind and respond. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in this series called Where is God Today? It, it, the subject matter of, of wanting to experience God today is almost a universal desire. I don't think there's anyone here that wouldn't love to experience God's presence in the today, hear God's voice in the today, uh, see God work in the today of one's life. And so we're spending this entire series about that. And to see where God is today in our world, in our lives today, we're looking at the Gospel of John, chapters 10 through 21. And the reason we're looking at the Gospel of John, something that was history 2,000 years ago, is, is two, two deep things. I'll say them again and again. There are these two verses that you would do well to make note of, remember them, maybe even memorize them. They're key, key truths about God. First is Colossians 1.15 that says, Christ is the invisible image of the visible God. Christ is the invisible image of the visible God. So if you want to see God and see who he is and see what he's like and see where he is and what he's doing, look at Jesus. Just look at Jesus. And then second passage is Hebrews 13.8 that says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if you want to know where God is today, you look for Jesus, and you look at where he was 2,000 years ago, and what he was doing 2,000 years ago, and you find him doing the same things today. So today we're in John 12, in the 12th chapter of John. It's on page 821 in your Bibles. I give you a little, a little background on this about where we're going to begin in the previous chapter or so, is just right before these events unfolded, there's a man named Lazarus who has two sisters, Martha and Mary. The three of them are very, very close, deeply love each other. Lazarus dies. Uh, he's dead for four days. He's in the grave. Jesus shows up after four days and, and raises him back to life. Okay, have you ever seen that happen? Okay, I have not, and, and they had not either. The man was dead. He was really dead, and Jesus rose him back to life. And so chapter 12 unfolds. It says, six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he'd raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. So there's this dinner party, and it's thrown to celebrate Jesus and what Jesus had done. And so picture yourself at the party. You either were a dear friend of Lazarus and Martha or Mary, or you were a follower of Jesus. And so, so you knew what had happened. In fact, many at the table had actually seen what had happened. Suppose you're one of the friends of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, and, and you were there. You saw the man die. And maybe you were one of the ones that touched the cold body. And maybe you were one of the ones that actually placed him in the grave. 
and he was there for four days. And maybe you were there when Jesus shows up and calls him out of the grave and he comes out alive again. And you're trying to calmly eat goat or something. I don't know what they were eating. Not Tex-Mex. They're trying to eat something. You're trying to calmly eat a meal. And every time you look up, you see, you see a dead man alive. And, and it just rocks your world. And then you look over and you see Jesus. And you see the one that had the power and the inclination to bring him back to life again. And you know this man, this man sitting near Lazarus, he has to be the Messiah. The power of God has never flowed out of a person such as this before. This has to be the Messiah, the Son of God. You're sitting there, and you can imagine the joy and the celebration and the worship and the wonder. You probably felt like you had to pinch yourself, and you wanted to go pinch Lazarus. You wanted to pinch Jesus, but you were afraid to because if he's the Messiah, not a good thing to have written in the book about you. So, so you're sitting there trying to come to grips. This is reality. This isn't some story that's unfolding. This isn't some theology. This is just reality. Verse 3, so, so then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. She anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. So Mary takes this, this jar of perfume. It says it's the essence of nard. It would be this very rare, very expensive uh, spice that would be grown and found in northern India, so it'd be imported from the distance of northern India, and it would have this fragrance of, uh, of gladiolas. It would be this red perfume, and, and it would say in the verses that follow, it would say that, that this was worth 300 denarii, which was this Roman coin, and if you were existing in that time, you would understand, you would understand this was worth an entire year's worth of work. And you would realize that you could go down and buy some cheaper nard, this perfume. You could buy some cheaper versions. You could buy it for the third the price. This is the purest of the pure. This is the most expensive nard you could have. And Mary happens to have, she has this full Mark, Gospel of Mark says, it's this alabaster jar that's, that's filled with this. It's worth an entire year's worth of wages. And she pours it all out on Jesus' feet. I've been trying to get my head around that fresh. Back about eight years ago or so, there was this um, bubble bath. It was Marie's favorite bubble bath made by this one company in a certain fragrance. And so I, I bought it for her often. It would cost six or eight bucks a bottle. But uh, the company quit making that bubble bath and that fragrance, which was a sad day in our house for Marie. It was her favorite one. And so some time passed. And I'm on eBay after a bunch of time passes. And I find... There are another 15 to 20 bottles in existence. I, I feel like I hit the mother load, and I'm thinking six or eight bucks times 20, I can handle that. And then I find the price. It's, it's a supply and demand market. I find the price, and I think it was like 20 bucks a bottle. And so I walked away from the computer, and I thought, how much do I love her? And I thought, I love her a lot. I realized I shouldn't tell this because your husbands are starting to look a whole lot better as the story unfolds. But this is just what happened. And so I think it's a lot of money, and I come back and think she's worth it all. So I, I order all of it. I capture the entire remaining market that I know of in the world. I buy all of it, 15 to 20 bottles at 20 bucks a piece. But I, I parse it out, giving it to her. Every Christmas for a number of years, she gets one bottle. It's 20 bucks a bottle. You don't throw this stuff away. It's a lot of money, and it's scarce stuff. 
This is true. She's not here. Thank goodness she's not here right now. It's true. I, every Christmas, she gets another precious bottle, and now she has to put a few drops in the tub because it has to last the entire year. But there have been a couple of years where she's had a really hard time, and I've splurged and given her a bottle middle of the year. And, and so, so I'm thinking, so 20 bucks a bottle. Mary has this bottle, an entire year's wages. Maybe you make $25,000 a year. Think of this. $25,000 a year, you work for it. You buy some perfume worth $25,000. You're going to pour it all out at one time. Or maybe you make $50,000 a year. So it costs you, for you, your world, $50,000 in this one jar. Do you pour it all out? Maybe you make $250,000 a year. The entire sum of your work life for an entire year in this one jar. And it says she positions herself in the most humble position at Jesus' feet. She pours out the entire thing. Outrageous extravagance pours it all out on his feet. And then... Her hair is pulled up as every woman's hair would be in public at that time, and she lets her hair down, and only one's husband would normally see it. She lets her hair down. She doesn't take a towel, as you would expect, to wipe Jesus' feet. She takes her own hair, and she wipes his feet with her hair. There's this, there's this outrageous extravagance. What, what could possibly spur someone to do such as that? And then I thought about it. There's this one that she loved as much as life itself who died far before his time, and he was gone. And Jesus brought him back. And there are a bunch of you in this room that have lost someone you deeply love more than life itself far before their time. And if someone could bring them back out of the grave, you would do the same thing. You would do the same thing. Think about that. Think about that. If, if, if someone would bring back that person, that spouse died far before their time, or that child that died far before their time, or that brother or sister, or that best friend, if they would just bring them back out of the grave, you would do the same thing. Jesus brought him back to life again, and she poured out this outrageous extravagance upon Jesus in gratitude. He didn't ask for it. He didn't demand it. It was just the response. What else would she do? A gift this big? She thought he was gone forever. She thought he was gone forever. So there was a lot of celebration in that room, but there was a lot of tension within those walls as well. The verses unfold. It says that there's this disciple of Jesus named Judas. He's the one that would betray Jesus in a matter of days. And it says that he expressed great displeasure over this. He says, this is such a waste. We could have sold it, given it to the poor. But it goes on to say, he didn't give a rip about the poor. He managed the money for the disciples and for Jesus, and he often stole from it. And he's thinking, my goodness, this is a huge sum of money. We could cash this in, put it in the treasury. I could, I could take some off of this. So he's complaining. There's this tension inside the house. There's some tension beyond the house as well. It goes on to say that there were a lot of people that saw Lazarus, and they began to believe in Jesus, believe he's the Messiah. And then it says there are these there are these leading priests that are watching the crowd begin to follow Jesus. And it says, see, they had already decided long before this, they're going to kill Jesus. They've already decided that. And now they decide, because people see Lazarus and follow Jesus, they decide they're going to kill Lazarus. Now, pause with me. 
Okay, you're going to end the run of someone who has power over death. Okay, he's, this Lazarus died once and Jesus had the power to raise him. How much sense does it make to think you're going to end this whole deal by killing Lazarus and killing Jesus when Jesus has power over death? Are you, are you tracking with me? It'd be like just science fiction. Suppose someone could walk through walls and doors. And so there's someone who you don't want to enter your house, and so you lock the doors. Well, big deal. They just walk through walls and doors. You know, that's, so, so how stupid can we be in rejection of Jesus? Well, we'll just kill Lazarus. Well, hey, he's already been dead once. This is the one that could raise him from the dead. We'll kill Jesus. But, hey, he has power over death. And so Jesus then, the very next day after having this meal... He enters Jerusalem, and again, there's this tension back and forth. There's this big crowd of people that are worshiping his name and praising his name. And, and then uh, it says there are these men from Greece, and so there are these non-Jewish people. There are these guys from Greece that are there, and they even want to meet Jesus because they want to learn more about him, maybe even follow him. And, and so there's this opposition. There's this people, group of people around him. There's this great tension, and into all that, in verse 23, Jesus speaks something that is very profound and somewhat surprising. He says, Now the time has come for the Son of Man, which is himself, to enter into his glory. Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. And at that very moment, it makes sense because there are these massive crowds that are saying, You're king, you're king, you're the Messiah. This looks like the picture of glory. But the definition of glory is the evidence of importance or preeminence. Biblically, when you go back to the biblical word, it means when you talk about glory, it means there's some evidence of of someone or something of importance or maybe even preeminence, which means ultimate importance. And so I'll give you a definition, a great definition by a man named Alan Ross of the glory of God. This would be worth writing down. The glory of God is the evidence that God is the most important or preeminent person in this or any universe. It's not about whistles and bells. It's not about the crowd cheering or anything. The glory of God is the evidence that God is the most important or preeminent person in this or any universe. It's just the evidence that he is infinitely more important than anyone. In fact, of all others collectively, he's infinitely more important. And Jesus says, okay, now now is the time has come for me to enter into my glory. And then he begins to describe what it's going to be. Verse 24, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. And he's saying, I will, I will give my life up to the point of death. Because when I'm buried, the result will be many, many new lives. He said, I'm going to die. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to to die for the sake of all others. And the cost is going to be very, very real. It's not the case that he'll be above the pain and above the physical pain of what will be the cross or above the pain of God's anger against all sin that he'll take upon himself, though he had never sinned himself. In verse 27, he says, Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. He knows the pain will be beyond measure. It will not be a cost-free death. It will not be a cost-free death. 
And then in 32 and 33, he says, And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. He said this to indicate how he was going to die. When I'm lifted up, he was saying, when I'm lifted up on the cross, when I'm nailed there, when I'm nailed there, I will draw everyone else to me. He's saying this on a Sunday, and on the Friday that follows that Sunday, he's nailed to this cross. He allowed himself to be nailed to this cross. And this is, I still can't get over this. He paid the penalty for every single sin of every single person. I'm really glad that we don't have to stand up one by one and have a litany of all our sins read. But, but if we did, once we got past mine, you'd be an old person by then. And we'd go through yours and we'd be older still. But, but every person in this room, every single sin, no matter how seemingly slight or no, or no matter how, how horrific, he died to pay the penalty and the price for every single sin on the cross when he was lifted up. And other than him, we had no other choice. Do you see, do you see the glory? Do you see the, the preeminence, the ultimate importance of Jesus? We couldn't pull it off. We would just have to pay the penalty, which would be eternal death and hell apart from God. Do you see the, the ultimate, infinite importance of Jesus dying on the cross? Where was God 2,000 years ago? Where was Jesus 2,000 years ago? He was lifted up on a cross, and he died. He died for all of our sins. So if Jesus was lifted up 2,000 years ago, where is Jesus today in 2016? He's lifted up. He's lifted up, but not on a cross. The cross was once and for all. It was once and for all time. Philippians 2, 8 through 11, though, says this. It says, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. He was lifted up one time on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him, or God lifted him up to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." 2,000 years ago, on that one given day, he was lifted up on the cross. But ever since then, he's been lifted up above all others to the place of highest honor. And Revelation 19, 16 would spell it out this way. It would say, on his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. The message is the one that was 2,000 years ago lifted up and died. He rules the universe now. The one that loved you enough, me enough to die for us, he rules the whole universe. He rules the entire thing. This is good news. This is really good news because we needed Jesus to be our Savior, to be lifted up once and for all, to die for our sins. We needed that. But if he had stayed in the grave, we'd be severely handicapped. Okay, our sins are forgiven. Now I'm on my own. <laughs> now I, I just got to navigate it all by myself. I'm on my own. But instead, he's the one that rules the entire universe. And now, when we turn to him in faith, or turn to him and say, I'm surrendering leadership to you, which is what faith is, when we turn to him now, 
Now we're turning to the one who has all power to help us, to empower us, to guide us, to navigate circumstances for us. He has all power. He has all power. And that power is ultimately shown in resurrection power, but it's a different resurrection than what Lazarus experienced. In John 11, 25, 26, Jesus was speaking at the time uh, to one of the sisters, and it says, Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. After one dies, they will live. Everyone who lives in me and, and believes in me will never die. Okay, this, this, is a, this is a much better resurrection than Lazarus experienced. Lazarus was risen from the dead. You understand that. You get that. But there's not a 2,000-year-old guy still walking around the planet named Lazarus. How long did he get to live the second time? We don't know. Probably a few years. It could have been two or three decades maybe. But, but he had a, a second run, which was a gift from God, but it ended. You know that, don't you? There was a day he came, he got buried again. He got buried again. This, this resurrection Jesus is talking about now, this is a much better resurrection. And it's a much more, much more costly resurrection as well. Raising Lazarus, what did it cost him? Well, maybe you could argue that it's increased the opposition's view toward him, but they were already determined and they would kill him regardless. So I would suggest it really didn't cost him anything to raise Lazarus, but, but to raise us from the dead with all forgiveness and to walk into heaven and live forever, it cost him the most excruciating weekend one could ever fathom. Not just the physical pain, but the, the anger of the God of the universe against all sin, he absorbed. It was through ours. Do you see the, the resurrection that he offers us is a much, much better resurrection than what Lazarus got the first time. And a much more costly one as well. And, and this isn't all of this stuff about Jesus saying, when you breathe your last, if you've placed your faith in me, if you've surrendered leadership to me, you step right into heaven. This is not just good theology. This is reality. I have some people I love a whole lot, and they are there now. They are there now. I knew it at their funerals. At their funerals, there were, half of me was deeply saddened that I wouldn't see them for a while. But the other half was filled with joy because I know where they are. This is not just theology. This is reality. You know some people. They're actually living there now. They're actually living there now. So I think about Mary I think about her response to the resurrection that Lazarus got. How she would take this alabaster jar filled with the essence of nard, pure nard. And she would pour the entire thing out on his feet. And she would lower her hair and wipe his feet with such humility. And, and that was just for a resurrection that would last a little while. And it hadn't cost Jesus anything. If, if that was the appropriate outrageous, extravagant response then, I found myself wondering what would be the appropriate, outrageous, extravagant response for us now if we get the resurrection, and, and we do, if we follow Jesus, it will never end. What kind of response makes sense? 
I would say this, your life, your life is your alabaster jar. And the question for you to ask yourself and me to ask myself is, are you parsing it out or are you pouring it out upon the feet of Jesus? Are you taking your one and only life and parsing out bit by bit, a few drops here, a few drops there, are you pouring it out day by day by day for Christ? To parse it out would be to say, Jesus, I'm, I'm giving you an hour on Sunday, but the rest is mine. To parse it out would be to say, Jesus, I'll give you a, a couple hours, a small group this week, but the rest is mine. To parse it out would be to say, I'll have a few minutes praying with you this morning, but the rest of the day is mine. To parse it out would be to say, I'll, I'll give you the words I actually speak, but I won't give you my thoughts. To parse it out is to say, I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you bits and pieces of it, but I'm going to keep some of it for myself. To pour it out would be to say, Jesus, today, today, this day, I take my, I take my alabaster jar, I take my life, and I pour out all that I have at your feet. I give you leadership this day, over all of my relationships. Any human being I'm going to relate to today, I give you leadership. I'm going to pour all that out for you. You lead it. I will pour out to you my work day, my school day, my play day, whatever it is. I will give you leadership over my work, my school, my play. I will give you leadership over my thought life. Help me there. Guide me there. Rule there. I give you leadership over my money today, my energy today, my time today. I will give you everything it's all at your disposal today. And then tomorrow, you get a brand new alabaster jar, brand new day all over again. And you decide, am I going to parse it out or pour it out? And you reflect for a moment, well, what is he worth? What has he added to my life? And when I get that, when I really get it, there's only one answer. I can't be outrageous or extravagant enough and point it out. And someday, someday, I'll be in heaven, and I'll look back, and I'll be looking back and saying, was there another ounce someplace? Because if so, it was wasted on something else. So I would ask you, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you know him, if you've given him leadership, then I would, I would ask you, are you parsing out your life? Are you pouring out your life? One day at a time for him. And if you don't know him, reality is 2,000 years ago when he was lifted up, he died for all of your sins too. You, you still bear the cost now simply because you haven't placed your faith in him. You haven't surrendered to his leadership. But the moment you begin that life of faith, that life of giving him leadership, then every sin is forgiven. Every sin is forgiven. And someday for you, someday for you, it's not just good theology. Heaven is yours forever. Resurrection is forever. I, I would have this mindset. I would refuse to parse out my life. I would refuse, refuse to think selfishly about the day that is unfolding. I would refuse to think only of myself and not about what Jesus would have. I would refuse to give anything less than all I have to the one who's given everything for me. What about you? What about you this day? Father in heaven, 
I pray that we might be stirred by the stunning gift Jesus has given at such a high price. I pray that we might have a little reflection about understanding Mary's position about pouring out a year's worth of wages of perfume uh, because her brother was brought back to life for a little while. And that makes sense to me. And I think to a lot of people here, that's how they would feel too if their loved one was brought back from the grave too. So help us make the connect to the much bigger resurrection, the much greater gift that was purchased at a much higher price. And help us ponder about, about what we'll do. Some in this room, Father, have never trusted Jesus with their life and said, here's my life, I'll place my faith in you, and I'll give you leadership. I will follow. I'll give you leadership. I'll follow. And, and for some in this room, this is the beginning point for them to, to simply pray that prayer. I give you leadership of my life. From this day forward, I, I follow you. I have my faith placed in you. Father, many of us in this room, we've been following, but we need a fresh take maybe on how to live out this day. And may we resolve not to parse out our life for Christ, but to pour it out. May we, may we refuse anything less. In Jesus' name, amen.